Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musicians. Welcome back to another fabulous episode of Score, the podcast. We have a very special episode today. First of all, we're joined by our fearless leader, Matt Schrader, or Mash hey. Raider. Uh, Kenny <laughs> yes. couldn't join. Kenny is out conquering worlds today, but we have Matt How with could us. he not for this one? This was, I, know, I was so I, excited for this. I told him, dude, this would be... We're, we're so... <sighs> Kenny, we're disappointed in you. Cancel and, your uh, you, rumble. You're welcome back anytime. Kenny, but. <laughs> but it's a special episode because we have one of the true legends, maestros, and my personal real favorite uh, among the top film composers, James Newton Howard, who, as many of you know, has scored enormously important films and is having, as we're about to hear, a pretty amazing month. He has four projects, three of them films. Actually, it's one film, two massive series, and a solo album, all coming out in these four weeks that we're talking about. So we're going to talk a little bit with James today about Pain Hustlers, huge series with Emily Blunt, All the Light You Cannot See, which is just a fantastic new Netflix series, The Hunger Games prequel. Mm, out this which, week, yeah. Which is coming out, which is kind of massive. And then, of course, just in his spare time, he made a solo album of the cues from his great opus of M. Night Shyamalan movies, which include... And I always wonder with those, like when someone comes, goes back and yep. revisits things, what do you change? What are the little things that have irked you for years? And you thought, ah, if I had more time, I would have done that. And this well, is the I, opportunity. I've been listening to those cues now as big eight suites that he's created from the Sixth mm -hmm. Sense and Signs and The Village, all those real unbreakable. I always loved that score. So that's an incredible project. So I think it's time to bring our fabulous guest. We, first, I wanted to just mention this thing because this has been happening. This is such an unusual thing. Um, but Stephen Price posted oh, a yeah. video uh, of his uh, choir for this uh, Looney Tunes, Wiley Coyote, Coyote versus uh, Acme is was the planned name of this movie. Warner yep. Brothers uh, animated live action blend uh, of a movie. Stephen Price, who I this. must say, a former guest of Score the Podcast and an Academy uh -huh. Award winner for Gravity. That's Great right. And composer. I, think, I think it's in that order on his bio, <laughs> his <laughs> yeah, biography. Right. Um, so Stephen Price, this is, is very unusual that a composer will post something before a project comes out. Uh, he did so because Warner Brothers decided to take to, to shelve this project now that it is virtually done and uh take a what what is estimated to be a 30 million dollar tax write-off basically on this project and i wanted to get your thoughts robert um because you've dabbled in both of these worlds of of uh of music of course but also kind of like the the executive decisions that happen that influence the art form 
because a lot of people, I mean, obviously the director of this project was very upset. You know, I imagine uh, Stephen Price is not thrilled that all this work for what sounds like a really cool score. And who doesn't love that great kind of like Looney Tunes sound mm-hmm. too. And he's, he's, he's bringing a cool new element to it. Um, but, uh, but the, this whole new, is this a new thing where a studio will just say, Hey, we're not doing that after all that's done. No one's ever going to see this. It's going into the vault. Um, I have a couple, first of all, I, I may take issue with the word dabble because, uh, I haven't just dabbled in that. It's been my entire career. (laughs) Um, but you know, I, I'm a dabbler. I'll, I'll go with that. Um, I may have an opinion on this that is dissonant, uh, may not be popular. So to answer the first question, are studios just doing this? It's not the first time that a studio mm-hmm. has dumped a film. I certainly, uh, I even worked on a really cool movie that got dumped and then got kind of re-released by popular demand later uh, and is now a cult favorite. But um, I think my, it, it's Idiocracy. Oh, yeah. Idiocracy. Yeah, that's a it, big it wasn't favorite now. dumped, but it was really, nah, this isn't going to work and not that big a loss and it's kind of weird and it wasn't promoted and Mike Judge was very unhappy as were the folks like myself who had worked on it because I thought it was just fabulous. I mean, any movie that has a character name upgrade was kind of (laughs) just so cool but um so i think my dissonant point of view which is instead of being consonant um last time i checked they're paying for everything i mean there's this kind of you know moral outrage my god i wrote this i worked on it i this is my blood, sweat, and tears. How can you tank it, you mean studio? Well, those feelings aren't in any way discounted. Totally mm-hmm. legit. As someone who's, you know, as a recording artist, I made records that didn't come out. Actually, the record label went out of business, and the record wasn't released, or they decided yeah. to kind of release it in name only, but they didn't. And I was out of my mind with unhappiness. But last time I checked, it's their business. It's their money. So for a studio to say, we're going to do this, as outraged and and offended as the artists are, in some ways you've just, that's the bargain. You're you're not in control. And I think some of the frustration comes from on the creative side comes from the fact that the studio technically owns all of this, right? I mean, this oh, isn't absolutely. I mean, technically, Stephen Price couldn't just use some of that. Not that he would, but if he said, "Hey, this actually this Looney Tune sound would be great for this period piece that I'm about to score," um, he wouldn't be able to use Correct. any of that because the studio now owns the the work, the the result of all of that creativity that he's put into it. So it's it's really almost the business side of it, of course, does make sense. The studio owns it, but there is kind of like a huge shame to all this creative work from talented people, and we might never get to see it as a result of oh, this. I, and of I course, think... in this case, I now the the latest on this is that Warner Brothers is starting to shop this around because there's been 
a good amount of uh, of feedback. Uh, I blowback is more accurate. People There's been a said, lot of blowback, and so Warner Brothers now has yeah. said, "Okay, well, maybe we'll try to try to sell this to somebody." Um, I don't know if that will uh, reach the threshold that they were looking for as a tax write off. I would imagine that's probably somewhere around what the math of it is. But um, it's probably going to be a huge hit because we all know that this amount of press. I mean, listen, <laughs> I worked on, uh, you know, Slumdog Millionaire was um, kind of discarded by its studio and picked up by Searchlight. Um, and uh, look what happened there. So, so studios make the wrong call. I think you've identified, Matt, something that's really a terrible part of this, which is you do all this work as an artist, Stephen Price and David Green and the people that worked on it. And then they own it and they walk away with it. And it's like, wait, I just spent two years of my life working on something. Uh, and I think it's gotta be just devastating and hurtful and all that. But the hard part is that's their prerog prerogative to do it. Cause they paid for everything. People don't realize that movie studios yep. own every aspect of the movie for the simple reason that they need to be able to resell it, relicense it, stream it, package it, DVD it, launch it into outer space. So they need to own everything. So I once remember being told Tom Cruise in a movie we'd worked on uh, night and day. Well, you know, they own his entire performance. And I thought that's so, what does that mean? Well, that's part of what an actor does. You give yep. that performance and the studio owns your performance. Um, and I think that's part of, in closing, that's part of the issue with what thankfully was just resolved. The SAG after strike was they own the performance with AI. How much can they take your performance and repurpose it? And mm -hmm. actors new and, right yeah actors were saying uh not and I you know they've reached some agreement as to what mm -hmm. the limits are but um I feel yeah it looks like Steven. a, a three-year deal so this may come up again in uh in a pretty quick amount of time some of yep. these issues if if uh, we keep seeing crazy advances in AI and everything but um but, but I think if you want to strike a blow for uh the revolution Go to Coyote versus Acme every day, all showings, and make it a huge hit, and then they will be able to. I mean, this is have to eat marketing. This is worth some marketing. You know, yeah. the, the the press headlines from something like this. People are going to hear about this as a result of this. And yep. I don't know. Now I'm thinking maybe I wouldn't have if this had just released in theaters, but maybe now I would be uh, – I'd be – interested in that looney Tunes i can't wait experience i love it enjoy the full atmosphere of something first like of that, all what a so. cool idea for a movie who doesn't love wiley coyote being you know chasing roadrunner off the uh <laughs> blowing, and up blowing himself up and <laughs> right crushed by boulders and <laughs> dynamite freezing and in midair and oops <laughs> yeah exactly. freezing in midair anyhow let's get right. to james james newton howard coming up next And seating himself in the chair hey, currently, won't you welcome, please, James? It is such a pleasure 
to see you for many, many reasons. But as I was saying just before you came on, I've had a week once again of a James Newton Howard concert. And dude, it's it's hard not to fan out, I must tell you. Well, thank you. It's been uh, it's been like James Howard, James Newton Howard month. A lot of stuff been going on. Yeah, <clears throat> we are in the middle of. I'd like to say welcome and say that it is James Newton Howard month because I've just gone through. I mean, I think in three weeks you have three massive releases, and that's one thing I wanted to ask about, which is how in the world are you going from Night After Night, which is a great title, yep. Uh, the M. Night Shyamalan, brilliant and beautiful record of cues. You have my new favorite, All the Light You Cannot See. I've been, Mrs. Craft and I have been watching and stunned by. And Hunger Games. And one more, Tell actually. Tell me, do you, sl- there's a, I missed there's one? There's a movie called... Um, Pain Hustlers, <laughs> Emily right. Blunt. <gasps> yep, that's right. So, Emily Blunt. Yeah, I did with Michael, Michael Dean Parsons, who I think you've you were just talking to. Just met. Yeah. Very talented young composer, James. So, what are can uh, I, first of all? Can, what What are yeah, times like but, this like? Just since we're on the topic, when you have multiple things out at the same time, I it was telling Robert. It's always kind of funny when you see like some actor who has two huge. Tom Hanks has two huge movies, totally different genres or whatever at the same time. And he's out promoting them or whatever it is, you know, his whole life. And you end up, one of them usually ends up kind of falling underneath some of the others. But um, what is that like as a composer? Cause you've poured your heart into all of these projects when they start to come out and they're so close together. Um, <clears throat> it's a moment of, I guess, uh, overwhelming gratitude wow, mm. I get to write all that music and I get paid for it um, and work with these great, talented people. So um, the one thing, you know, my son is a um, senior editor at a, at a publishing company called Farrar, Strauss and Giroux. And he was just made a senior oh, editor. Beautiful. And there's articles about him in Harper's Bazaar, New York Magazine, as being a cultural, one of the new cultural, I guess, not icons, but influencers. And he's been very excited about that. Hmm. And I said to him, remember a Jimmy Webb song called MacArthur Park? And there's a line in there that goes, I will win the worship in their eyes and I will lose it. So right now I'm getting the worship Hmm. and it'll inevitably go back down and flatten out, which is fine. Um, It's all good. Though I wonder, I in your career, I, I mean, as I'm going through all our old podcasts and reading about you, I think that unless I'm mistaken, I don't see a dip in the decades of your output. I, I You've always been top of the game. You're, you're, you know, you're Rafael Nadal. Has there ever been, you feel, a period that it... Yeah, I mean, I guess it's one of those things where maybe you feel it, but maybe the outsiders that know your music don't <laughs> don't see it quite as much. Do you think of your, your work in chapters like that? You know, I quite honestly, I don't know how I think about my work. It's just go, been going on for almost huh. four decades. And um, yeah. I think strategically I have 
tried to, to do various kinds of projects whenever it was possible. So, you know, when I did Pretty Woman, I was the mm. rom-com guy. And then I did The Fugitive. I was the action guy. And, that, and that's what happens. And so if I just kept trying to pepper it all with um, different kinds of, of, of um, challenges, it would, it would be good and keep me very interested. So I just love composing for movies. And there, there was a year, I think, where I, there was a couple of years. I think the year, the first Batman Begins, I think just before that I had done, I think, The, the Interpreter. I think I'd worked with um, Sydney, mm. which is an amazing thing. And unfortunately, it goes perfectly. Uh, when I'm working for Sydney Pollock, I get writer's block. And I think I've had it twice in my oh, life. No. Um, but I managed to get through it and I, and then I think, did I do, I don't know. I thought I did a, a night movie shortly after that, but anyway, right in that period, it wasn't fun anymore. I was going through a, I think I was getting divorced on top of that. So it was just a hmm. difficult time. And I, I kind of decided to take a long breather, not because I thought it was healthy, but just cause I was so depressed. And that's when I got a call from Hans saying, hey, why don't we do this movie together, Batman Begins, and um, he's really a cool guy. And he had gotten a call, and he said, and he called me, and he had said to Chris, yeah, I'll do the movie as long as I can do it with my mate, James Newton Howard. And Chris said, yeah, cool. And so we both went over to London and spent six or seven weeks writing the score, and it was a blast. You know, I had fun again, and um, Hans really <laughs> taught me that. Um, that if it's not fun, hmm, why are you doing it? Or how do you make it fun? So that was a period I think I was. Did you ever have a dinner with him, a night with him, a cup of tea where you confided that this was special or you had previously to this moment bummed out a little and this was great? Did you have that conversation or was it organically just moving forward? You know, he and I are pretty close friends. and. He's heard me. We've both been present when one of the one or the other of us is going through a difficult time, um, and then it passes, and then you move on. But I think this was just one in a long line of of uh, you know immer- emotional kind of turbulence once in a while that just happens. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> I'm amazed that it's one in a long line because you're you've chosen a career that involves a lot of emotional turbulence in some ways. You're not a roofer, you know, you're just going to show up and put the roof on and go home. I'm sure there's emotional turbulence there too, but you have to I mean, all the light you cannot see. I'm riveted by the story. I'm amazed by the emotional, there's a theme in there that's just, it's heartbreaking. So you got to get into emotional turbulence as a day job. So it's amazing you say it's only been one. Mm. James, I want to ask you about that solo album, because in the middle of doing so many different, you know, assignments, was that elective? You just decided that's something I want to do? Did Sony Records come to you and say, we'd like you to make a record? I'm just curious. I think the genesis of it perhaps was my agent, Sam Schwartz, 
talking with Mark Cavell, head of Sony Masterworks. Yeah. Um, and there was conversation and yeah, they, they approached me at that point saying, you know, you could do a lot of things. We'd kind of like you to do something, this kind of thing. And, and then during the pandemic where, you know, for a period of time, nothing was happening, even though I had, I was in post-production on a couple of movies, but I was just sitting around kind of bored. And I had thought about the M night scores before thinking they might be some version of them, some new exploration of them might be a good album because I felt that they are all connected in a funny way on mm. lots of ways. But um, I didn't want to just do a mashup. So I called Sony and I, and I said, rather than doing this, what I'd really like to do is this. And they got behind it in a big way. Um, and um, I just felt that it was something I had to do in a funny way. I mean, I didn't have any trying to think I did have movie commitments waiting, but I wrote the, I wrote Hmm. the majority of it during the pandemic. Um, And just kind of to avoid being a mashup, I I knew I had to write additional new material to get from one idea to the next. Hmm. I didn't want it just to feel like, Oh, that cue into that cue into that cue. I really wanted each one of them to feel of a piece. Um, and I'm very, you know, quite honestly, um, it ended up, I don't think it's boastful to say this, but I was very happy with the way it ended up, um, kind of invested myself emotionally and financially, um, to the extent that I needed to, to get, get it to sound the way it sounds. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I don't think it's boastful at all. I think it's just, I think that sixth sense cue, Lonely Boy, is that the Lonely name? Lonely Boy, yeah. That I'd always kind of just dug the cue. That cut on the record is just, I mean, I don't even know what, it's off the charts on every what level. What do you it's notice? So, as you're uh, speaking to Robert's yeah. point, what do you notice going back, revisiting? <laughs> work that you've done maybe years ago i'm sure there's things that you've forgotten or things that you remember as slightly different than what you're hearing and but either way you can learn from a lot of you know the experience since then or things you might have thought to yourself i wish i had thought of that earlier i wish i had done that differently do those things start to come up as you're revisiting these cues what do you start to identify that maybe you didn't at the time when you're focused on a film well Quite honestly, pardon me, <clears throat> froggy this morning. Quite honestly, um, 
Knight and I worked so closely <clears throat> together. Um, <clears throat> you're going to edit this, right? Will you stop one sec? Or let me just clear my throat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Sorry. <clears throat> I'm getting old, Robert. <clears throat> no, you're not, man. That's one of the things I need to ask you, which is <laughs> if you are getting old and you're doing four mm. movies and solo records, then God, please share <laughs> your fountain of youth. You were saying you and Knight work closely. Yeah. So in the end, um, of course, any relationship with a director and a composer, the composer is ready to accept um, criticism and rejection from the director. Like I, I submitted many things tonight that he very politely and collegially, collegially said, I don't think that's what, it, that's what works. And I remember one moment in signs, I had written something and I was really so enthusiastic about it. <clears throat> and of course I make, very elaborate demos of all the work I do. And I sent it to Philadelphia where he was. And uh, I got a call the next morning saying, James, you know, it's great, but it's just not working. And I, there was this pause and I, and I, my word, my response was <clears throat> that is profoundly disappointing. And I meant it. And he just started cracking up and cause it was so <laughs> overblown a response. I mean, you know, I'm used to doing now, this is earlier in my career, but I'm used to doing 30 or 40 rewrites of certain things occasionally, which is a horrendous thing. But in terms of feeling like I made mistakes or could have done something better, always, you know, always, I think I could go back and dig around and find, oh, that orchestration didn't work. And why did I do that again? But, you know, those, those scores kind of came out uniquely correct in a funny way it was they were more minimalist writing much more minimalist less um <clears throat> embellishments less orchestration interior kind of um stuff going on in the middle of the orchestra and um i think the mistake would have been to veer off course in writing about the tone of that those movies because that's what it's all about for me is hmm. every one of these bloody movies as you think you've done i every kind of action movie and or every kind of and you haven't as soon as you get a new one um it's different and so i felt i didn't feel like i made any gross errors let me put it that way it's interesting you mentioned the tone because i actually wrote down a quote from an earlier podcast where uh first of all i use something that you said when i teach <clears throat> which is you said, I'm trying to tell the same story that the director is trying to tell. And students, com young composers, it's like their jaw drops because they're there trying to impress the director with their super cool cue instead of, mm, right. he's going to be really impressed if you are on the same path that he is. Um, I mean, it was a great quote. You said, what was his or her intentions when the scene was shot? What is the character about? What are the threats to this relationship? I thought, you know, hey, com young composers, listen. But when you just said about the tone, you said you can learn all the do's and don'ts of film scoring, but you really need to know what the music needs to feel like. And that's deep. I don't, I, 
Well, it actually leads when when you go ahead. No, I was just going to say. Um, I used to say that, and I've often said that about every every A list composer knows what the music is supposed to feel like, from <clears throat> Desplat to <clears throat> Hans or to Tommy Newman or certainly John. Um, I think that's intuitive. I think part of it, I don't think you can mm -hmm. really learn how to do that. I think one can learn more technique about the things not to do in terms of being early on a hit or, you know, things like that that are very kind of simple. Writing fewer notes usually helps, and I'm still struggling with that one. But <laughs> just in terms of how to, who's, you know, and I, I've also learned whose emotional point of view are we in in any given and I've missed that one many times where I've written a cue and the director will sit here and say, hmm, I don't think it's about what you've written. I think, I think you're blowing right wow. through something that's really important. And so I think I've become a much better listener and that helps. Um, Cause when I started, gosh, almost 40 years ago, um, I was quite arrogant. Head office. <laughs> Head office. Yeah. I was quite arrogant because I don't know. I was good, relatively good pianist, and I was a decent synthesist. And it took me a while to stop being a diva, pain in the butt. Diva for no reason. I had no reason to be a diva because I hadn't succeeded. But I just came in here in, in, in the thing with a very kind of, I know what to do with your movie. More than you know what to do with your movie. So much interesting stuff. I think... I identify when you said the diva part for me was I'm the musician. How could you know what cool musically director I'm here to? And it never occurred to me. It's his house. I'm painting it. It was, Hey man, you hired me as a musician, you know, and there'd always be those directors who said, listen, I played trumpet in my high school band. I know music. And you, oh, dude. But you said something earlier that I really love because the A-list composers, you, you kind of bifurcated it into those that know what it feels like. And then there's those that understand the technique part. But the A-list is both. It's very easy maybe to sit on the sideline and say, I know what this scene needs. But what's always blown my mind about the A-list is they, you, can then musicalize that appropriately. That is, it's like sitting, saying, oh, man, the guy should hit it into the outfield right now. That's what he should do. But how do you actually swing at a pitch and hit it there? That's a big stretch. You are unbelievable in the way you do that. Well, Dude, you know what, Robert? You, you kind of crush it. I just want to say one thing. Go ahead. Um, I've had many, many opportunities to fail. So I've <laughs> had a lot of time in the saddle to learn. I may have a lot of good instincts, but it's instincts combined with experience, combined with technique that has really worked for me. Um, I like to think I've gotten better. And I've gotten better at some things. And I listen to older stuff in the nineties or ever when I think, wow, I don't know if I could do that again. Cause it was younger and more exuberant and just huh. kind of out of huh. plain coloring out of the lines. And 
So I'm maybe a lot more thoughtful now. Sorry, what were you going to say, Matt? You know, we hear as as any kind of film score aficionado or fan knows, like people like Bernard Bernard Herman stand out as kind of at least there's this kind of idea that they did their own thing, you know, and they and and we know that they pissed off directors as they went along and they, you know, they they had certain relationships that I think suffered as a result of their approach to those. But given that this is such a hugely collaborative art form, I'm curious whether you think the state of kind of a good story requires a director and composer to be simpatico now, or if, you know, there's ever a point where there's such a brilliant, you know, musical idea that, you know, it's worth risking that relationship and what the director who should know the story better than anybody else um, thinks about it and all like something that's, that's worth going nuclear over. No, you're wrong. Here's that. This is the vision. I don't know if that's ever happened to you in particular, but um, that's kind of the difference between the strong headed composer and maybe the one that has learned to get along uh, as, uh, as you've made more and more things. What are your kind of thoughts on that? Well, <clears throat> I think I am pretty strong headed composer, but that doesn't mean I'm going to lock horns and, and go, you know, nuclear, mm. as you say, with the director. Um, <clears throat> I will defend my point of view in a sort of collaborative mm. way. Um, and then I have to just take a deep breath. And if it's still not working, um, muster up the energy and the, the actual physical energy to do it all over again, which is hard. Um, but as you mm. go, as you go through this marathon of writing a long score, say, um, it becomes very physical. And so it, to lose um, an opportunity for a, a particularly great cue that you think is a great cue to succeed is hurtful. And I find that a lot of the times where I have a personal revelation in my own work that, oh, wow, the mm. counterpoint, I really did good counterpoint there. That woodwind orchestration is really cool. Almost inevitably, every time I have a personal revelation, that gets red flagged by the director because it sounds like it doesn't sound like anything I've done before. And um, yeah, that's just kind of, <laughs> it's another reason to do a solo album. Um, no notes. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. But as far as I'm the bad. director, I mean, yeah, it is his or her show. Absolutely. And it took me a while to learn that. And I, I say to young composers that one of the things you have to do to succeed is feel sorry for the director. And I, oh, nice. I do that, you know, because unless they're, and even though I want to kill them sometimes, not kill them, but assault them physically. Yeah. Say, um, yeah. I get over that quickly. And I remind myself they're, they're carrying such a huge burden, giant, bunch of money spent testing, eh, not so good, running out of more opportunities to change the movie. Um, so they come to us in the last, the last stretch. And really some people refer to it as the final rewrite. And I think that that's really accurate. Mm -hmm. um, and we yeah. have an opportunity to help the film or ruin the film that can happen <laughs> or write a great score to what turns out to be a mediocre movie that happens. It's hard to make a good movie. Um, but I do think, yes, I think for those great cinematic moments, I think do think the composer and the 
director have to be pretty much in sync. Now, sometimes those relationships burn out. That's okay. But they go on for mm. quite a while, hopefully. I'm actually surprised you said that thing to night. You know, I'm deeply disappointed simply because I can only imagine you're, you might be tired and burned out at that point too. I mean, the, the director, by the time he gets to the music and the final thing, I always saw in my gig, they were exhausted. <laughs> they were angry. Mm -hmm. They were out of money. Mm -hmm. The studio was just relentlessly hammering their well-being. The composer relationship was the potential for a little bit of solace. And, man, can we hang together and just do music? And I'm so burnt out on this movie studio and this movie. So it's such a precious and fragile time. But I always thought, he said, you know, I'm deeply disappointed. A-listers <coughs> like yourself. Also, <clears throat> I was always amazed by your political savvy i've sat next to the big guns who the director would say i don't know if that's working and i think oh, that's the coolest cue in your movie <laughs> what do you mean that's not working and i'd bite my tongue and the composer would say you would say huh tell me what's not working for you and i'd want to hug you <laughs> to say how did you just do that how were you not just saying i'm deeply disappointed that was bitching. Yeah, and is your blood pressure a, you know, a million. Yeah. In those moments. How do you do it? <laughs> no, I've said that, you know, I've said, are you, you know, I wouldn't say, are you kidding? But, uh, <laughs> you're thinking it. I have <laughs> been thinking that. And then, you know, sure enough, going back and doing it again, more often than not produces something that I can like even more. Um, mm -hmm. sometimes not. And that certainly happens. Um, uh, yeah, but I, in the end, I just don't get, allow myself to get steamed about it anymore. Yeah, I'm very thick skinned and you have to be. That's so great. And the thing about a compo about the, a composer or a director reaching the end of the line on a movie that's not working for whatever reasons, out of assets and out of resources, um, is that I find, um, I find the, it just drives me more. And I feel, I, t I like being the mm. white knight. I like being the hero to mm. save this $200 million movie. Everything's on the line. It's going to be a worldwide huge movie or not and blah, blah. And they come to me. So that is a big ego deal maybe, but it works because um, I just like taking on the responsibility. I like sitting in the hot seat. I think um, having a limit time limit and having those kinds of pressures is something one either responds well to or sort of collapses and folds. But I've always been pretty good. You know, that's, that is Buddhism 101 in this way. I wanted to ask, what do you do when a movie's not working and how do you stay positive and not whisper to yourself or to your family, oh God, you know, it's a, all those expressions, you know, I'm polishing a, you know what, and I'm, you just kind of answered it. 
which is you're rising to the occasion. I've never thought that. I always thought composers had to kind of go home and gnash their teeth, and they're the people on the 405 freeway saying, oh, my God, i got to finish this I can't believe they saddled me shit. with this. Yeah, right. Right. So you just actually gave me a whole new perspective I never thought of, which is you're going to be super positive. Well, sort of. If you were a fly on the wall <laughs> okay, in, my, in my control room, you'd hear me complaining bitterly about <laughs> a movie or um, the thing is in order to complete the task, I think one has to believe that maybe the movie's better than I think it is. Hmm. Um, and that okay. actually even go beyond that say, well, this movie is, I think it's, and I would always ask Michael or I'd ask Xander, whoever was very close to me as, as an assistant. Um, do you think this movie is really bad or do you think it's pretty good? And we all we <laughs> all kind of say, oh, we th we think it's. Will they be honest? Of course, um, I guess <laughs> they they are protective of me to some extent. They don't want to blow me out, but uh, yeah, they're pretty honest. They're pretty honest, and yeah, I think you just have to find something you about... that inspires you in the movie. Find one character. Well, you know oh, that's, that's the Jerry Goldsmith phrase that i always loved which is he says you're scoring the movie you want it to be i like that which is you know not the one that's on screen i did a i was blessed with the opportunity to do a movie with him that was a a wreck of a movie nobody was getting along story wasn't working the lead character had a beard and the studio was infuriated by that he wanted you know and jerry was hearing all this stuff and score was magnificent and he overcompensated in so many ways. And I just, he said, I'm scoring the movie. I want this to be, that's the script I initially read that I signed on for. And God bless you. I wanted to ask you about your assistance and I maybe one of them is sitting nearby and listening. He's right but there. You have had a, Oh, good. Okay. Michael, close your ears. Um, you've had a, pretty great run of assistants blowing up to be great kind of on their way composers. I mean, I, I was recently somewhere where Chris Bacon was getting awards and I remember meeting him making tea, maybe for you and me. And uh, I'd just be curious to know, is there a, Besides just your good instinct, is there a process for becoming an assistant at the James Newton Howard studio or are the, is it just dumb luck of somebody stumbling into that room? We will be starting Michael a contest. Gig? Uh, you'll be getting yes. a lot of submissions. <laughs> well, how did Michael, Xander and Chris get the unbelievable gig of being in the room with you? You know, uh, one of the things I think that is, important to understand about working with me is that it's incredibly intimate and small. You know, I have mm -hmm. two technical slash creative assistants. Michael's the head guy. Um, we just hired a new guy because the, who was it that left? I can't remember. I can't remember. Anyway. Um, and I think the process goes like this. I have stolen people um, from remote or somewhere else um, a couple of times. I think I stole Michael from remote, sort of, right? Or anywhere, somewhere. Nice. And um, 
so the word gets out in a very small community that that I'm looking for an assistant. And I don't know, I think maybe we even put an ad out in a couple of things. Is that possible, Michael? Did I ever put ads? Oh, are you? Anonymously, not James Newton Howard. It might say A-list composer looking for assistant needs to be uh, very good at the following thing. Da, 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 da. Um, please, please apply to whatever. <laughs> and then uh, we get like 50 people come in or 60 people come in right back. And then Michael and Aldo would do the, or previously Xander or whoever else is here would do the initial interviews with them and they'll single out a bunch of people that they think I might get along with and they think are hmm. technically up to speed. And this also, this process also Good. includes Pamela Solly, my 17 year personal assistant. I know Pamela. Yep. Um, and then there's another level and then there's another level. And the last level usually comes down to about three or four people. And then I sit in a room with them mm. and I just feel the vibe. Yeah. That's all it is. I feel like, am I going to be comfortable writing bad music in front of this guy? Because I do write bad music. Um, or it's girl. So I've had a lot of female assistants, by the way. Yeah. Before we let you go, any thoughts? Matt and I were talking about this, how we should ask James. Matt, you had that question well, you wanted to ask first, about. First, I, I want to just touch on the evolution. Yeah, I, th there's a couple trends that I've seen, but um, but this actually ties into a project that is releasing now, Hunger Games, this being a prequel. So I guess it's not quite an, a direct evolution of the story. It's It comes before the existing story. But I, I was curious with Hunger Games, how you approached what, the music needed given that it feeds into um, a storyline that so many millions of people are familiar with now and what that either allowed you to do or, or you had to kind of restrain certain things going into it. Um, the, the movie's out uh, coming out uh, this week. So I haven't seen it yet in all, all, uh, all transparency, but I was curious about your kind of approach to that. Um, that's a good question because initially it is a prequel. You're right. Um, takes place 65 or 64 years. I'm not, I don't know exactly the number before Katniss is born, I guess, comes into the picture. Hmm. Um, so it's mm -hmm. all new characters, um, except for one, of course. It's the origin story of Snow. And what's his first name? I can't remember in the movie. Sorry, but I'm getting... Coriolanus? Who? Coriolanus <laughs> no, Snow. No, Coriolanus, right. But that's the, is, oh, right. So anyway, I'm getting old, right? I forget names. The bad guy. The, the, the bad future guy, bad guy. Yeah. And um, the origin, I guess, of the Hunger Games and what they were all for and what they were about. And initially, my mandate from Francis was just keep this in the world of the Hunger Games. Feel free to use as many themes as you want. Use whatever you want. And I mm. said, okay. And then I saw the movie and I realized I can't use a whole lot of anything that I've already written because it's a completely different movie. It's a completely different sensibility. Um, mm. It's very substantive. It deals with a lot of intense issues about betrayal and about friendship and about love and about hate 
And it's kind of more of an adult movie in a funny way. So I, and then the next mandate I got was don't use any electronics. So the score mm. is purely orchestral, which I loved. And the rhythms, of course, there's some drums and things in there where, where I think they need to be and where Francis had put them in. But I, it was an opportunity to color this movie very differently. So I used a lot more woodwinds, kind of scary, creepy, low winds. Um, I always use a lot of choir. Uh, my wife thinks I use too much boys choir, mm. but I still like it. Um, it was just a completely new movie and a new musical opportunity. So yes, I do quote some themes, um, but not a lot. Um, Why no electronics do you think Francis said are, are minimal? Any just aesthetically? I think he was, I think they were thinking since this is, there's no specific time for these movies really laid out to begin with, but mm. this is earlier and maybe sub sub, um, subversively we can just make it feel older without the contemporary element of that's know, what i was a, wondering yeah, almost like it good, hasn't been hasn't been cre yet. hasn't been invented yet right oh that's interesting exactly yeah i'm now wondering when you did water for elephants with francis had he were either of you aware that you were about to embark on this ginormous collaboration and franchise i think it was pretty significantly before uh, the first Hunger Games, but I think you had worked with him once before Water for Elephant. Uh, I am legend. I'm, I am legend, right. Because he, he, he basically in the first conversation said, what do you think of James Newton Howard? I, I said, who? He, <laughs> I, I said, um, with good reason. Yes, where do we sign? You know, and you know how much I love Water for Elephants and love that score oh, and too. love those I, cues. I, just I love, love them. The movie, the oh, so good. Um, Same. Well, you know, so good. just quickly, um, the first one, Hunger Games, I turned down because I'd never heard of it. And <gasps> I didn't know. my then uh, 12-year-old son said, Dad, are you crazy? It's the Hunger Games. It's just oh, amazing. Perfect. So Gary Ross directed the very first one. And Gary had called me. Wow. Um, and I said, you know, I have to, with all due respect, pass. I, said, I don't think it's right for me. And then some other people got involved with it composing-wise, and he offered it to me again. And by then I had mm. kind of knew what it was about and then screened the movie for me. And uh, I was all in. Um, and I think we had a relatively short amount of time to do it. And then Francis took over, and Francis is just one of the best people on earth that I, for me to work with, gets it, yeah. gets it, and has such specific and helpful notes. And it's just wonderful. It's just friendly and fun. And, and the, it was like ticking all the boxes from the second, you know, the catching fire all the way through. And it made the whole process, it was testing well, you know, all those things that can be goblins you know that can really make things tricky so um yeah i guess i can't remember quite what you're asking but uh francis was yeah oh no it's just that's so nice i thought i was mistaken i thought francis did all of them i'd forgotten that he wasn't the first i remember i think gary ross 
was Sea Biscuit, which was mm-hmm. didn't work out so well. Well, well um, I, movie you brought up wrote that was really good, Dave, and Gary wrote. Oh, that's right. Now. That's what it was, Dave. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, really great. Sorry, really. You you brought great. up that um that synthetic uh score, maybe not being invented yet in this whatever timeline we're in in the the Hunger Games world. That's actually where uh, I mentioned to Robert, I wanted to ask you the trends that evolve. I remember watching. I can't remember what the film was. One of your early, earlier films and see that had a lot of synth in it and thinking, man, this is cool again, because <laughs> there is a period where some of those sounds really go out of date. And now a lot of those have started to kind of reemerge. And um, some of them are almost exactly the same thing. You would expect them to evolve a little bit, but some of them have almost become timeless. I'm curious. And I realize this is all biased by your perspective and kind of your your uh, work and who you've worked with. What trends you see moving forward um, kind of emotionally in the way that music like the sentiment that is brought by uh, musical accompaniment in storytelling? I mean, I think that's a good question. And I I believe that. The opportunities to write big romantic adventures with a hundred piece orchestra are few and far between. And I love doing mm. that. Um, mm. But I also love doing electronic scores um, in my own way. I'm not, I'm not on the level of Atticus and Trent. Um, I think they, well, yeah, I mean, they do their own thing and it's kind of incomparable in a lot of ways because that's just what they do. <laughs> But I think there are a number of young composers who come up with that um, aesthetic, that it's about minimalist writing, almost sound design, which I think is really important. Mm -hmm. And I think the synth thing has evolved in a big way to where it's it's just an acceptable part of the palette. It's just natural. It's just going to be in there. I think some people do it more, combine it with orchestra more successfully than others. I think I've always been good at that Mm -hmm. because I started off you know, I, I learned to write. I worked with Elton John back in the middle seventies and Elton gave me the opportunity to do synthesizer work and uh, work with an orchestra. Um, so I think that was kind of a natural place for me to go. But I think synthesizers, again, who's, who's programming, what notes are they playing? Yeah. When do they play it can be heartbreaking. Absolutely. Very emotional. I think that it's evolved so organically which is a weird word about synthesizers that now it's just the music that fits the film yes and i mean and the cool thing is it can kind of be anything the synth world is so manipulatable in terms of its character that um because people associate all of these kind of orchestral instruments with certain feelings and of course it's way that's super simplifying it but um some of those associations don't really exist yet with the synth world. And so you're maybe not quite fighting against the current when you hear, you know, I can't use this because it's the violins are too sad or whatever, those types of things, maybe those rules don't quite exist yet. And that kind of new world of it is still pretty, uh, pretty interesting, even though you're right. It has been around a while. It has solidified itself. You know, and I think you articulated, the sound design part of it is also super interesting now. People sampling the sound of a garage door closing and making that a cue. You know, I have to admit and that a lot of one. my palette for synths and one of the great ways that Michael and 
others before Michael have helped me is by providing me, and this is a rich guy. I get to, because I'm, you know, very successful and I, I have the, I guess I can afford to have somebody, hey, bring me a thousand new synth sounds. And Michael is incredibly good at that. And then I'm good with, once I get a sound, I can manipulate it. You know, I work in Ableton and blah, 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 to some extent. Um, but I have to say most of the programming um, does not come from me anymore. I, I've chosen to spend my time really on dealing with finishing the score or whatever. But um, Yeah, I think that your um, day job is not only finishing the score, but composing it and Ladies and gentlemen, we are honored to be next to the maestro this morning. This has been so much fun. Day job. Thank you, James. Yeah, yeah oh, thanks for your time as always. James, I, 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 ha I haven't geeked out, but you know, I've always, just always loved your, you and your musical sensibility is about as close to what I would dream of if I was a director getting James Newton Howard to come and be that emotional. That kind of and cool, cool stuff. And we're fortunate because this Always month cool. is James Newton Howard it month. It is James. It might be James Newton Howard. <laughs> he really day. Is. I think one afternoon would be enough. Oh, uh, that's funny. Um, thank you, Robert, for that. And um, of course, Matt. It's a pleasure talking to you guys. And continued success. JNH. Okay. Big love. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate your good wishes. Thanks, James. Okay. Bye.